1: I'm J.B. Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig with details. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com
3: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. I'm Christian Sager. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're coming at you with some listener mail. That's right. Uh, Carney, our mail bot, uh, is currently going undergoing routine uh, self-virus scanning. So he's kind of in a dormant state, but he's still able to print out listener mails, your listener mails, uh, for us to sort through and read. So uh, he's just continuing to, to splurt out this massive pile of a uh, of like dot matrix printer. Uh, and guys, I know this is an
2: inconvenience, but it really does make sense because when Carney gets infected with malware, it is a bad scene. Yeah,
4: I yeah. actually heard that somebody hacked into Carney through the Internet of Things in order to commit a DDoS attack. <laughs> really yeah against what against what uh, uh know, I believe what was the it target stuff to blow your com. Yeah. oh yeah they turned our own uh listener mail robot against us ah wow. that's vile yeah yeah it's just real despicable
3: yeah. guys
2: these hackers it's not know, quite you know as feel. vile as the people who seize the baby monitors but it's close
3: <laughs> <laughs> Uh All right, well, let, well, without further ado, let's see what we, we, we've got here. We, we haven't done one of these in a few months, and we've received a lot of listener mail. A ton. Yeah, of some wonderful stuff. And sadly, you know, we're not going to be able to get to all of it here. And we're, we're not able to directly respond to a lot of it. But we do appreciate all the wonderful uh takes, all the wonderful tidbits, all the wonderful uh, bits of feedback that you send in each and every week. Okay, and first off, our listener Kelly writes to us on Facebook in response to our
2: episode about being eaten by a giant spider. And just a note on that episode, we did have to publish that one twice because first time it came out, maybe that was during our DDoS attack. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so, something happened with the publishing. And so if you saw that episode show up twice uh, or if you had a problem with it the first time, you might want to check that, that second version of it. Yeah, anyway Carney, right. Uh, so Kelly writes, hi, guys. I just listened to your giant spider episode. I was never skittish with spiders. My friend uh, even had the sweetest tarantula that liked to cuddle more than a puppy. Somehow I doubt that, but okay. I was always the designated, quote, spider remover of our family because I thought we had a great symbiotic relationship. And Kelly, you are exactly right. Humans and spiders, peas in a pod. (laughs) (laughs) We're friends. They are not our enemies. But... Kelly does have a a little case of friendly fire to mention to us here. Kelly writes, about a decade ago, I woke up with the left side of my face so swollen just by looking out the corner of my eye, I could see my cheek. I sleep stumbled into the bathroom to find huge, bloody sores from my forehead down to my nose. I got an appointment at my doctor's that day. He informed me that I'd been attacked by a brown recluse in my sleep and also let me know that if I hadn't come in so quickly, the venom would have likely eaten through my skin and muscle and started to uh, ulcerate my skull. Wow, that sounds horrible. Months of medication later, plus a few glycolic face peels to soften the scarring from ulceration, I'm almost normal. I do refer to myself as Scarface to give myself more street cred, by the way, <laughs> you, and, and we get some pictures. You can still see my spider scars on my forehead and nose, although they're blessedly just a fraction of the original sizes. Well, I hope you out there listening will not take this as justification for global spider panic. We still stand firmly against spider panic, but if you can avoid being bitten on the face by a brown recluse that is something to to do uh, I grew up in New
4: England and, uh, that, the brown recluse was like always the, um, the, the scariest thing that you could run into up there. Like, we don't have scorpions or, you know, poisonous snakes or anything like that, but mm-hmm. what about like, like, like
2: a New Hampshire townie with a shotgun?
4: Well, those, yeah. I mean, I guess technically, yeah, I was always on the lookout for but that. But with more than two legs, <laughs> this is the scariest. But yeah, uh, is, is a brown recluse a problem down here in the South? Yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah, you could get brown well, is, brown recluse a problem. I the, I I they do exist down here. Well, one, it, it only takes one to be a problem, right? Yeah, it, it, it really gets into that whole scenario. Like, to, to what extent is it an actual problem, just to the perceived threat of the brown recluse? Right. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. For example,
2: I, I follow on Twitter a, a spider researcher who uh, named Catherine, who I believe she works out of Canada, but she does a whole thing on Twitter that I've seen her do before, which is just like hashtag not a brown recluse, <laughs> which is going through people's pictures that they put on Twitter and say look i found a brown recluse in my house and she's like that's a wolf spider Um, (laughs) so you know it's easy to to get too worked up about a spider that's basically brown yeah
4: yeah i thought you were gonna say i follow a spider on twitter (laughs) that would be great i would love to
2: see a spider's twitter account
3: (laughs) yeah me too
2: it's just like it's all fake news (laughs) (laughs) exactly okay what else has Carney got
3: for us Well, we received an awful lot of email related to our Only Child Syndrome podcast episode. Yeah, we got oh,
4: – there was a lot of mail. So thank you all for sending that. A lot of people telling us their experiences being an only child or being a parent of an only child. There were so many that we couldn't possibly read them all, but we did pull one or two for today's episode.
3: Yeah, and this one that I'm about to read actually comes from uh, someone who has some experience with uh, the the one-child policy in China. Ah, Okay. So uh, this uh, bit of listener mail here is from Betty. Betty writes in and says, Hi, guys. Just listen to the Only Child Syndrome podcast, which was great. And I thought I'd share some experiences from growing up in China as an only child in the 90s. Growing up, we all knew the one child policy was out of the norm from a global and historical standpoint. But since almost every kid we ever met was an only child, not having siblings just felt like the norm. And very few people found it weird. And of course, my friends and acquaintances from school ranged in personalities, just like everyone else in the world, I can 't speak for other only children, but I was raised in a way that would have been pretty difficult to result in spoiled bratness. Uh, I had to do many household chores every day from age six to moving out of college. I was a default laborer for all home reno and home improvement projects uh renovation not <laughs> yeah not going to reno uh if i wanted to buy anything like toys or games uh, it was limited to my chinese new year money which was like 10 to 20 bucks a year or i had to do extra chores to earn it when i turned 16 my parents also told me to get a job in addition it was mandatory to do well in school of course at the time i did not appreciate doing all those things but in retrospect it kind of worked out by the time i moved out for college. I knew how to cook, clean, do laundry, and all kinds of other household tasks. I knew how to get a job, got a job, and already had money saved up from it. And I was the go-to handy person in my dorm because I was one of the only few one of the few people who knew how to use power tools and fix broken equipment. Mm. I live in Canada now, but whenever anyone discovers that I am an only child, their first reaction is, oh, I would have never guessed. (laughs) But from what I can tell, it's nearly impossible to guess if a person is an only child anyway since who they are largely depends on how they were raised and what kind of environment they grew up in. Would things have been different if I had siblings? It's possible, but my parents wanted to raise me as a capable, hardworking, independent person, and there's no reason they wouldn't have wanted the same for all their children if they had had the opportunity to do more. Thanks again for the great podcast, Betty. Yeah, that definitely... uh, Thank you,
4: first of all, Betty, for sharing the experience with us, but that seems to line up with what we... Uh, the conclusions we came to in that episode, yeah. which is it seems like only child syndrome is not a psychological issue. Uh, it's more of like a sociological factors, how you were raised, what type of home you were raised in, what country you were raised mm-hmm. in, what the norms were there.
2: You know, everybody I know who fits the stereotype of the only child is actually an oldest child.
4: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't think I mentioned that on that episode. But, yeah, I have the same experience. <laughs>
3: Yeah. Yeah. The the episode in the episode, we explore the idea that only children are spoiled or they're lonely. I mean, all the, the various ideas that just won't go away culturally, despite all of the evidence yeah. to the contrary Hunt for like over 100 years
4: now because yeah. of just that one guy's bad methodology in a psychological report
3: yeah but this, this, was a, this was a great bit of listener feedback though because it uh it highlighted both the just just the the only child aspect of yeah. it as well as the one child's uh, uh policy a bit I, I think it's always interesting to get a different perspective on that yeah so this next
4: uh letter comes from Someone who wants to talk to us about an episode from, I think it's over a year ago, but this is a really interesting uh, message, so I wanted to address it now. It's from the episode that Robert and I did on The Unlanguaged Mind and Feral Children. Uh, and if you haven't heard that, please go back and listen to it. We had ai wouldn't say fun with that episode, but it was very educational for us learning about this sort of history behind that.
2: And we got a lot of good feedback about yeah,
4: that. Yeah, yeah. So uh she says, Hello, Robert and Christian. My name is Candace. I just recently discovered your podcast and have been going through the archives. I stumbled upon and listened to the two episodes titled The Unlanguage Mind. I found the information you presented and your perspectives fascinating. Those two episodes resonated with me because i am a teacher of the deaf and hard of hearing and have come into contact with unfortunately multiple students born into hearing homes without access to american sign language several of these students resulted in developmental social behavioral and academic delays because of the lack of language one student in particular who i have been working with for the past three years is the closest i have come to a feral child He was not locked away in a room, but he did miss the critical periods for learning language. When he entered the school system in kindergarten, it was clear that he had no language, no respect for social norms or rules, or any desire to communicate with other humans in a truly meaningful way. To communicate his needs, he resorted to pointing, mimicking, gesturing, and violence. Multiple other team members and myself have been punched, kicked, cut, bitten, scratched, and had our hair pulled by the student. He has thrown feces at our staff and urinated on classroom floors intentionally. However, with intense language, academic, and social intervention, the student has improved and matured by leaps and bounds. He is now functioning in a classroom with typically hearing peers while using an ASL interpreter. He is still learning to express himself in ASL and is using two to four word phrases. He now values relationships with adults and peers and understands how to nurture and keep those relationships and is currently eight years old. Thank you for shedding light on this difficult subject and informing the public of a human's dire need for language. So that's really interesting to me because I know it's been a while since we did those episodes, but I don't remember coming across specific examples of children uh in present day scenarios where they – were they, unless they were like, uh, totally neglected, but in this situation, because they're deaf, it makes it even more difficult.
3: Yeah, it's been a long time since we, we, uh, looked at, uh, the research data there, but yeah, I don't remember a specific case like that.
4: Yeah, but this was really fascinating. Uh, thank you for sharing it with us, Candace. And I'm really glad to hear that this, this kid is, is getting, so it sounds like world-class treatment, um, and help so that he can adapt better with his peers.
2: Yeah. It, it is amazing. You know, one thing I, uh, I actually recently, uh, was thinking about your episode on The Unlanguaged Mind because yeah. of a movie I just saw oh. that came out. Uh, did, did y'all see Arrival yet? Yes. Yet. In Arrival, the, they was, talk about... You're not
3: talking about the, the one with Sheen in it, right? Not Martin Sheen. No. What are you but, talking uh, about? Charlie Sheen was in a movie called The Arrival. I know oh, you're talking about. <laughs> Have Ron Silver in it? That <laughs> one I've seen. There's actually
4: two of those. Those are about the aliens with the backward legs. This is yes. just... Arrival, without a "the" in front of okay, it, right? Yeah. The
2: one with Amy Adams, I Forrest Whitaker. Yeah, yeah, it's about uh it's a movie about language in a lot yeah. of ways, and they discuss the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, which actually plays into the plot. I don't want to give yeah. anything away, but yeah. they talk about the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, and I was like, "Oh yes, the unlanguage mind." Arrival is a movie that I feel like is made for us
4: and for listeners who like stuff to blow your mind. Like it's like such a great sci-fi movie that really latches onto real world concepts and works deals them, with ideas. Yeah. And works them really well into the story. I really I, enjoyed I it. Was, yeah. I was so impressed. With the
3: one it. based on the novel by Ted Chang. I yeah. Think? It's a yep. short story, I think. Oh, yeah. short story. Yes. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you'd love it. You got to check it out.
3: Cool. Yeah. It's on our, on our list. Uh, so I will, I will, da- I definitely look forward to seeing that one because I, I actually, I uh, am just finishing reading finally the, uh, the three body problem, ah. uh, which, which deals with some similar themes, you know, communication with uh, an alien, uh, species and what the, what the, what the 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 ramifications of that communication might be. In the meantime,
4: we should all go back and watch those Charlie Sheen movies. Uh,
2: the Arrival. <laughs> I didn't realize there the was Arrival more than story. one. No. Yeah, Charlie, you, I'm pretty sure there's. Should a we sequel. watch The Wraith? Did that have Charlie that another, Sheen in it?
4: I don't know, but that is. But uh, <laughs> The Arrival. Wow, that movie had an effect on me. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yes, The Wraith. It does have Charlie Sheen in it. I okay. just looked it up. Okay, He, he plays like a, a guy. I think he gets killed in a drag racing accident or something, and he comes back for Whoa, revenge. Is it, is it Soul Taker, essentially? It sounds very Soul <laughs> Taker-esque. Soul Taker might be a remake of The Wraith. That right, sounds
4: like we need to do uh, some coverage on both of these. This this reminds me, actually. This is a good uh, opportunity to point out casually that we've been doing some Facebook Live experiments where we've been showing movie trailers of movies related to the episodes that we're doing that week. So if you're on Facebook and you have time to watch Facebook Live, you can hear us talk. You guys did one about the spiders, right? Oh, we yeah. Did. Giant yeah. spider
2: movies. That
3: was the the second one. And uh, we're, we're a bit disrupted by various holiday yeah. occurrences right now. But we'll hopefully get right back into well, the... uh the back of the, the the regular routine with that.
2: Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we will hear from our listener Jen.
3: With the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office. Traffic, parking, it's going to be packed, and everyone's going to be mailing off gifts and packages. So you need to do what we do. You need to go to Stamps.com instead. Go with Stamps.com. You can avoid all the hassle of going to the post office during the busy holiday season. Everything you could do at the post office, you can do right from your desk instead. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own printer and computer. Print postage for any letter or package, the instant you need it. And then the mail person just picks it up, and you're good to go. It's easy, and it's convenient. Here at HowStuffWorks.com. We use Stamps.com when we need to send out the odd bit of merchandise or correspondence, and we want you to try it out as well. So right now, go to Stamps.com and use our promo code STUFF. That's S-T-U-F-F for this special offer. You'll get a four-week trial, plus a $110 bonus offer that includes postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com right now. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in STUFF. That's Stamps.com. Enter STUFF and start mailing things.
2: So our listener, Jen, uh, got in touch with us over Facebook, and she's responding to our episode, uh, the episode Robert and I did about, a while back about undead genes. So brief refresher from that episode, some researchers made public a paper on a pre-publication server claiming to show that some certain genes in the bodies of dead animals were... We're still, uh, transcribing RNA after the organisms died, meaning that you'd have whole body death, right? Organismal death. The organism is dead. But on the molecular level, some life or some version of life is still going on. The genes are still encoding for, for RNA. And so Jen gets in touch with us about this. She says, Hey guys, I love your podcast and finally had time to listen to last week's Undead Genes episode. As a molecular biologist, I was really excited for an episode right in my wheelhouse. There were a couple of things that stuck out to me while listening that made me go hunt down the paper. I assume you left out some detail to keep things more accessible to amateur nerds versus those of us who do things for a living. But I noticed in the paper that they have left some glaring holes. I'd even venture to guess that these holes could be the reason while we're reading the article from a depository and not a high-impact journal, but I digress. The main point I wanted to make, while acknowledging that you as the host may already be aware, is that RNA is extremely sensitive to degradation. The notion that you can plunge a fish into an icy death pool and then just plop it back into some normal 70-ish degree uh, Fahrenheit tank and then come back days later and get good-quality RNA is literally unbelievable to me. Have you ever had a fish go belly up and not noticed right away? I don't know if I remember fish going belly up. Do you guys keep fish tanks? We
3: have a fish tank right now, yeah, but luckily probably. so far
2: so good, nothing's died. Uh, so I j- had that experience as a kid. Yeah. Jen says it gets stink- stinky fast. Do you agree? Yeah.
4: My dad collected, uh, like exotic fish in a tank. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They, she's
2: right. All right. Uh So she says, of course, the authors did not give any data about the RNA integrity. And she says a standard thing would be a one to 10 scoring system. So she says, my guess is that what they are seeing as an upregulation, and that was their term of, you know, uh RNA transcription appearing to take place. So my guess is what they're seeing is as an upregulation of new genes may actually be transcripts that are for some reason fairly stable, but in low abundance. So they're missed in freshly dead samples, but seem to appear in longer dead samples only because more abundant transcripts have fallen away due to degradation. So does that make sense what she's saying? Like Mm -hmm. there's all this RNA there. Some are... Not very common, but fairly stable. When you test the organism right after death, you don't see a bunch of these. But then when all the other RNA decays and these fairly stable RNA molecules are left that's what you have left, and it makes it look like more of this is being created after death. So it sounds like more research is required. Yes. Uh, And she says it could be that or some other factor she hasn't considered. Uh, But anyway, she says, "I, I know that their claim is that these are truly new RNA molecules, so degradation is not a factor, but that is a huge leap for which they do not provide support. I just wanted to add a large dose of skepticism on top of the healthy bit we should always have. This concept is still fascinating, but the study is too flawed to add to the conversation in a meaningful way. Anyway, love what you guys are doing and always look forward to what you have in store next. Have a great day, Jen. Thank you so much, Jen. This is the kind of email I love to get because it's from an actual expert who has uh, some some direct knowledge of the kinds of research that we covered in the episode. So uh, those of you out there who heard that episode, please take Jen's considerations into into consideration <laughs>
3: I wasn't uh, when, the, cons-
2: when thinking about this research.
4: I wasn't on that episode but I, I, I love uh, messages like this because I think it's so important for us to critically evaluate the... Um, the sources that we're bringing into the episodes that we do and mm-hmm. and some people have asked us this before and it's worth reminding we are not experts in these fields that we talk about right we mm-hmm. we do the research we Im- immerse ourselves in it and we try to bring it to you the listener in the best most accessible way possible but we're not always able to uh, for instance like a uh, judge whether or not the rna methodology of this study
2: Right. We don't have the knowledge of a working microbiologist.
4: Exactly.
3: Yeah. And so I really like to hear that uh, kind of feedback. All right. We have another bit of listener mail here. This one comes to us from Kristen, and she is responding to our episode on the Chinese practice of ghost marriages, the the rite of Ming-Hun that we uh, discussed. Mm, yeah. Yeah. That was an
4: interesting episode. Uh, Chinese and also sometimes Japanese practice. We, we got a lot of email about mm-hmm. it. Uh, one in particular that I remember that's not on here was uh, from a man in Taiwan letting us know that the red envelope practice that we mentioned, he was totally unaware of it, yet his wife, who is also Taiwanese,
3: was aware of it. Yeah, we also heard uh, from a few different people who are um, in the uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints because we discussed uh, the celestial marriage practice a little bit and its comparisons uh, mm-hmm. to this uh, this Chinese practice of ghost marriages. And that's where uh, this particular listener comes in. Uh, she writes in and says, I really uh, love the recent episode about the Chinese practice of ghost marriages. The entire time I listened, I was absolutely fascinated. When I got to the end of the podcast and you mentioned uh, uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints, uh, my eyes almost rolled out of my head. I'm a Recent transplant to Salt Lake City from Washington D.C. I'm Jewish, and it has been incredibly difficult to adjust to living in the city that is the the seat of uh, the letter the Church of Latter Day Saints. So the uh, uh, the writer here, Christian, she goes on to talk about how uh, essentially by thinking about this uh, this Chinese model and and, the, and the, the, the some of the ideas wrapped up in uh, in in the in the writing of Minghun, it forced her to reconsider these practices that were much more immediate and some of the belief systems that were much more immediate uh, in Utah. Uh, she uh, she summarizes and says... When I got to the part of the podcast discussing uh, the LDS, I initially rolled my eyes and scoffed. I began to write it off as, quote, just some other weird things that Mormons do, unquote. And as the podcast ended, well, it struck me. I sat there an hour, fascinated, open-minded, and ultimately understood the purpose of ghost marriages and had a respect for the practice. But as soon as the word uh, Mormon was mentioned, I became dismissive and closed-minded, ready to let my own bias get in the way of furthering my understanding. And I really analyzed Analyzed, analyzed why that was an, an inappropriate reaction to have. How could I sit there and listen to the entire show with an open mind? but justify being so dismissive at the end. I appreciate that you do a podcast that is all about information, and you do a great job of pushing your audience to open their minds and hearts to other cultures and beliefs. I believe you guys initiated an epiphany in me. I really needed to have and ultimately will help uh, help me as I continue to learn about the LDS faith and enjoy living in this beautiful melting pot of a city. Thanks again for the great show and for leading by example on being open-minded. High fives. Kristen. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah. I especially
4: I, I guess like something that's worth highlighting for the listeners is like sometimes we approach these episodes and maybe have our own uh, either misconceptions about cultures or we're just totally unfamiliar with them because their lifestyles outside of our uh, territory, I guess is the best way to put it. And for this episode in particular, I was really fortunate in that I have a friend who is who is Mormon, who's a member of uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints. He really role modeled for me that there were a lot of misconceptions about that faith. And so when we approached this episode, I just thought of him in the back of my head the whole time and, and, and how he would approach talking to me about it. And that was very helpful to me. So it's always, it's always nice to have people in your life like that. But then mm-hmm. again, when we approach episodes like this, another one we're going to talk about later, we, uh, Robert and I did the episode on combat stims in the military. I don't have any experience in the military and it's, it's completely outside of my, uh, lifestyle experience, but, it was really nice to hear that people who were in the military and did have experiences using these drugs in the field, uh, seemed to resonate with what we, what we talked about in that episode.
3: Yeah, so much of what we cover here, especially when it is uh, psychological or cultural in nature, you know, it, it's, it's about, it's about putting, trying to put ourselves in another person's, uh, worldview and another person's sense experience. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and that can, that can be challenging at times. But I also think that's, that's one of the, the core mission statements of the show, right? Yeah. That it's, uh, about finding ways to open ourselves up to alternate modes of, um, of sense experience and of, and of, uh, reality perception. Um, you, you know, we're, we're a science podcast, but, uh, but, but I feel like that's a core aspect of it. Like if, you know, we're called stuff to blow the mind, blow your mind. I, I feel like if I could change the title, it would probably be more like stuff to expand your mind you know? yeah. or a slow motion explosion of the mind rather than just sort of the, the pop that the name implies. I definitely agree.
4: Um, And to that point, actually, we received another email that's related to that episode about ghost marriages. And this time it was from somebody who belongs to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, his name's Michael and he says, Hey guys, I just finished listening to the episode on ghost marriages and I found it fascinating. I've never heard of this practice before your episode. I belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and I want to applaud your accurate description of celestial marriages. An interesting point about ceilings is that they are only performed in LDS temples like the one near you. He means us in Sandy Springs, Georgia. So for those of you who aren't, uh, from the Atlanta era, Sandy Springs is a suburb that's what, north of the city by about 30 minutes? Uh, he says a temple is a building that is not open for worship on Sunday. It is only open during specific hours of the week. And we believe that ordinances may be performed for those who have died as well as the living. We believe that those who have died then have the opportunity to accept the ordinance performed on their behalf by those who are alive. That is a reason that our church is big on doing family history and provides services, uh, such as he, he lists a website here called FamilySearch.org, in order to learn about our ancestors and perform ordinances for all who did not have an opportunity to perform them in this life. It's an amazing topic. I would be happy to answer any questions that you have about this practice. I enjoy the show. Thank you for the information that you are able to beam to my mind as I commute to and from work
2: if only we could literally use beams
4: yeah well <laughs> we might get there soon i don't know some new uh can we use em drives now that that's been announced can we start beaming uh information to people's brains with em uh, drives
2: speaking of being critical of research <laughs> that's the thing that if yeah. we ever end up talking about that i'll be very curious to say what skeptical scientists say in response <laughs> now that the m drive paper has been published
4: yeah well uh i just wanted to thank Michael. Um, a, I think for both Robert and I going into that, I mean, we researched that practice, but certainly we had not experienced it before. So we were doing our best to try to represent it. And it's encouraging to hear that we we didn't offend anybody.
3: Yeah. All right. We're going to take a second break. And when we come back, we're going to dive into more uh, listener mail riches uh, brought to us, of course, by Carney.
2: Hi, I'm Lauren Vogelbaum, host of the new How Stuff Works Now podcast. Every week,
0: I'll be bringing you three stories from our team about the weird and wondrous developments we've seen in science, technology, and culture. Fresh episodes will be out every Monday on iTunes,
1: Spotify, Google Play Music, and everywhere else that fine podcasts are found.
2: Carney, what have you got for us next? Oh, well, it looks like we are getting some of the massive mailbag that we got in response to the episode Robert and I did on fire. Oh, yes, yes. World before fire. So Robert and I did a couple of episodes on fire about how uh, sort of the conditions on Earth, the geological conditions and atmospheric conditions that make Earth the fire planet. And as far as we know, uniquely the fire planet. When you guys were researching, did you only listen to Yngwie
4: Malmsteen's Fire and Ice?
3: I don't know no. what you're talking about, okay. but uh, just a, a continuous loop of, uh, of what Metallica's fight fire with fire. Oh,
4: nice. Nice. Okay. <laughs> That's better.
2: Oh, man. I remember that one. <laughs> you know, my favorite Metallica song back in the day was Four Horsemen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. We're really, I'm yeah,
4: I love Master of Puppets. I don't know where we're going with this, <laughs> but Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
2: Uh yeah, so anyway, we we heard from several people and I'm going to try to get a, a few messages about this uh couple of episodes cuz we got a ton. But we heard from Julian, one who said, "Hey there Robert and Joe. My ears just had the awesome pleasure of being completely enveloped and soothed by your latest episode. That's oh. embarrassing, but you guys all right. Are
4: doing some um
2: some ASMR. I I hope not, but okay. So Julian says th- the episode was A World Without Fire. Uh please excuse my strange intro." <laughs> Somewhere in this episode, you mentioned that wildfires can occur outside of hot, dry climates like the jungle. I figured I'd write in and fill you in on a recent fire we had here. I live in Belize in Central America, and last year we had a hurricane pass just south of us. The jungles here are too lush and the atmosphere too humid to have a wildfire from an unchecked campfire or spark. However, when this hurricane passed over, it did some damage to the vast jungles, although never strong enough to completely knock down everything, hurricanes do damage to the canopy breaking off the tops of trees and high branches, and leaving a blanket of dead foliage on the canopy. And this is what happened last year. After several weeks, the dead foliage dried, and it is believed that a lightning strike ignited this, causing a forest fire on top of the jungle. A strange and scary event indeed, but it does happen. And this sort of connects to, I definitely didn't see it in the jungles, but we talked about the ideas of crown fires, right? The that become very hot and spread from the tops of trees. Mm-hmm. Picking up with Julian's email, another thought that came to my mind during this episode came after you guys mentioned how a civilization or life form would ever be able to advance without fire for cooking, smelting, metalworks, etc. I immediately thought to myself, we have fire to thank for our advancement as a species, but is there an element? Is there a substance or a certain reaction like fire that another species on another planet has used and thanked for its advancements that we have yet to discover or may never discover at all due to differing planetary and atmospheric conditions uh this is sort of uh one of the questions we talked about and so julian says really wish i could have gotten this to you in time for your second episode on the topic thanks for the great podcast you guys do i know you must hear this plenty but i have to mention it as well you guys do amazing work uh it's always a joy listening to you and also julian adds that we must pass on the praise to Christian.
4: Oh, that's thank you, Julian.
2: <laughs> uh,
4: but I hope that my voice also soothes Julian. You
2: are, you are incredibly soothing. I try.
4: I was just going to mention in relation to this, uh, this letter that we here in Georgia
2: have, uh, been, what is the terminology that they're using? Like red alert or? We've whatever. had smoke conditions. Yeah. So just last week, uh, we, we, in Atlanta, the city was enveloped in smoke. You yeah. Could like you outside. couldn't even
3: really walk outside. It was mm-hmm. like a beautiful day too. That was the thing. I was going to yeah. work on my front porch, but you go outside and it's just, uh, you're just breathing in this. Yeah awful fume yeah yeah
2: and, and uh and this apparently came from uh fires up in northern georgia There yeah. were wild forest fires
4: because it's been so dry so very right. very much related to what he was talking about in belize it sounds like
2: uh well different there because it's not naturally dry there but the, right. the dead foliage can become dry if it gets all ripped off of the trees ah. due to a hurricane so quick personal aside on this
4: uh so they've been telling us here in Georgia that we should be, you know, concerned about the possibility of fires just starting in like your yard or something yeah. like mm-hmm. that. It's uh, not the weekend to have a bonfire. I have um, – there's a house that's empty behind me. You guys know this. I think I've told you. And there's been some people squatting in it. Oh, and yeah. And just the other night, they started a bonfire in the backyard of this oh, empty man. house. And I was really worried. Like. I don't want to rat out on these folks, you know, like they it's cold out, they need a place to stay, but that, at the same time I also don't want them to start a fire that burns the neighborhood down.
3: I mean, put that in put it in a barrel. That's why we have barrels. Yeah,
4: right. <laughs> a steel drum, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but this is like a a like concern for a lot of people yeah. in the area right now. Yeah.
2: Okay, like I said, we got a bunch of email about the fire episodes because we asked we asked the listeners, like, could you think of another chemical reaction alternative to fire that could take place on one of these worlds where fire is not permitted? The first thing that pops into my mind is plasma. Did you guys talk about that at all? Well, plasma. What do you mean? I mean, like plasma is a phase of matter. But how would you create? um, Couldn't you use plasma
4: for some of the same things that you use fire for? How would you create it? I, that's the problem. Yeah. Right. But I guess you'd have to imagine an alien civilization where they'd have access to it.
3: Well, and that's the, that's the, one of the problems is that increasingly you have to employ uh, a rather robust imagination factor yeah. to fill in the gaps uh, to, to, to make up for the lack of fire. Right. But anyway, we
2: postulated that the idea, we don't know that it's true, but we said, you know, it could be that you can't have advanced civilization in this universe without a planet that allows for fire. And uh. we, we talked about one paper where a guy makes this case, um and so uh, one listener got in touch with us our listener named Tapan got in touch with us uh, uh, to say that essentially this idea that you might need fire as a necessary prerequisite to advance technology and th- the main idea we had there is that you can't create metal tools without fire as far as we know. Uh Tapan says we essentially should be more open minded. So I so uh, I sent Tapan a list of modern technologies and was like okay well I I want to see your imagination how could you come up with these things without fire or metal tools? And uh, Japan's responses were interesting to me. So for instant long-distance communication, the suggestion was sound travels through all solids, not just metal. So I'm trying to imagine, like, wooden or stone telephone wires. I don't maybe. know, but maybe. Okay. But then I said, what about rapid land transportation? <laughs> Tapan says, wooden spring catapults with landing parachutes, <laughs> uh, like wow. woven See, out of natural materials. It's very materials. creative, yeah. Okay. Uh, I was like, okay, what about video recording and playback? That's got – you got to have metal tools for that, right? uh, And Tapan suggests, record movement using a fast solidifying semi-solid. Oh, okay. So like gel-type materials maybe, maybe. Oh,
3: okay. Yeah. So the, the – if you're recording, say, a Roadrunner running across a street, you would have to have it run through the gel and then you would have like this gel material. I don't know. Yeah. We're, we're
2: using vast,
4: like imaginative it only, powers. <laughs> it would only play back if you were within proximity of the gel.
2: Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. okay. So, uh, for aviation, the suggestion was of course a hang glider, but of course a hang glider doesn't gain altitude Glides. on its own. Yeah. Um, for optics and astronomy, Japan suggested, I thought this was smart, water lenses. That's actually, I could see that being a possibility. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, maybe, who knows. Uh, for radio, Japan <laughs> suggests loudspeakers. I don't know about that one. <laughs> uh, for computers, uh, we get the suggestion of a difference engine built with wood, which you could build. Uh, I guess the question there would just be size. Like you could build a giant wooden structure that works to, essentially be a binary yeah. difference engine computer right i i think to do that you know to, to make even a simple computer you might need a, a a structure the size of a state or something i mean it would be <laughs> gigantic
3: yeah. uh, in the uh, the three body problem it's it's brought up at one point uh, that uh, you could you could have a computer where it's basically individuals sitting around waving flags
2: yeah, yeah. Ah. i mean any any mm-hmm. Anything you can use in nature to create a consequential series of on-off switches could be right. turned into a computer. It's like a
4: giant Turing machine.
2: Yeah, it's just going to be so big. Mm-hmm. You know, The thing about semiconductors is you can pack them into this tiny space. Uh, and then, of course, uh, with distributed power grids, I was like, how would you get that? Well, Tapan reminds me, any container with electrolyte will transmit electrons. Ah. Uh, so maybe you could yeah. have like a saltwater pipe-based power grid or something like well, that. Well, this came up in our
4: Frankenstein episode, too, talking about voltaic batteries. Yeah. Um. Huh. Yeah, that's interesting.
2: Uh, so anyway, I, I, I'm not buying it yet. I'm not, I, I am not convinced that you can get to advanced technologies without fire and metal tools, but, uh, but I really, really admire the imagination and these responses. I think they're very smart, even if maybe implausible.
4: <laughs> well, this is how we get cool movies like Arrival, right? Is like these thought experiments. All right, so this next one comes to us from Chris, who works at the JPL for NASA. And this is related to our episode about the OSIRIS-REx mission that recently launched. Chris says, Hi, gentlemen. While listening to your recent episode on the OSIRIS-REx mission, I was thrilled to hear you mention the three sites, Goldstone, Canberra, and Madrid. I know I'm pronouncing Canberra wrong because we got we a lot got of We got emails about, about that. that. Yeah. Uh,
2: in the fire episode, I mentioned Canberra. Is because, that how you say it? Yeah, it's Canberra. Canberra. All right.
4: Sorry. But Australian. I pronounced it
2: Canberra. Okay.
4: Uh, that will be receiving signals and data. These three sites make up the Deep Space Network, DSN, which is a system of 13 antennas managed by NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. The cool thing about the DSN is that every spacecraft, American or otherwise, otherwise further away than the moon, talks to the Earth through these antennas. Voyager phones home, it's calling the DSN. Juno sends a picture through the DSN. The DSN is one of NASA's oldest continuous programs, but it doesn't get a lot of love because it's like the cup holder in your car. You're so used to it being there, you don't really notice it unless it stops working. But really, it's fascinating and exciting both for its storied history, they supported the Apollo program, and its importance to modern-day space exploration. I do have one correction to make. You said that the antenna can talk to spacecraft up to the size of a pizza box, box. That factoid is actually as small as a pizza box, and it's meant to illustrate how powerful and precise this equipment is. Imagine aiming at something that small just one mile away, let alone a billion. Our DSN operators do that 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Anyways, thanks for the fantastic podcast for making me a little smarter every day and for mentioning one of my favorite NASA projects. I would love to hear a future podcast on the DSN itself because I think there's lots of good material there or even the history of the Jet Propulsion Lab, which is, in my humble opinion, the coolest NASA center. Keep up the great work.
2: Is there really a coolest NASA center? I, so, they're all cool in my yeah, heart. They
4: do, yeah. Uh and and we at How Stuff Works uh just have a just general fondness, I think, for NASA and and love doing stories related to it. I will say Robert and I are looking into doing an episode related to the history of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory <laughs> because we're talking about doing an episode on Jack Parsons, who is instrumental in starting the JPL and Coincidentally, uh, thought himself to be a magician (laughs) occultist.
0: Nice. Have you
4: not heard
2: of Jack Parsons? No, I don't know anything about
4: this. Yeah. Yeah. This is awesome. A lot of fun, uh, in there. We're, we're talking about how to put it together right Yeah. So so
2: he was interested in getting in touch with the outer horrors through space
4: exploration. (laughs) Sort of. I don't know if he, and, and he had a, a really interesting history parallel to L. Ron Hubbard.
3: Yeah. I guess the, the, the question we're sort of asking is at this point, do we want to do an episode just on Jack Parsons, yeah. uh, his science and his uh, extra scientific uh, beliefs? Or is it uh, something in which he is uh, a part if we are like looking at more of connections between – modern scientific investigations and sort of new age ideas yeah so we're still figuring that one out
4: if you're interested in the meantime once upon a time when i first started at how stuff works i think my first video i ever did here for our stuff of genius channel was all about jack parsons so i did a little four minute jack parsons video i'm sure if you google stuff of genius jack parsons it should come up
3: all right. So, uh, in discussing our episode on combat stems, yeah. combat stems better uh, warriors through chemistry. Uh, we discussed how, you know, so often in our video games, there's all this horrific violence, uh, military combat going on, and to the for the most part, you don't have to deal with the psychological uh, effects. Uh, you know, sometimes like in a game like XCOM, you can have characters that end up panicking and mm-hmm. they run off or they uh, there's a friendly fire incident, something like that. But for the most part, it's easily dealt with. So we reached out to all of our gamer listeners and said, hey, do you have any examples of games that actually take PTSD into account in any uh, way, shape or form? And we heard back from some people. Uh, so this one uh, came to us from Matt. Listener Matt writes in and says, Hi, Robert and Christian. Love the podcast. It keeps me company and informed on the way to work. On your Combat stems episode, you wondered if there are video games, specifically shooters, that deal with PTSD. I'm not sure about shooters, but there is an excellent game called Darkest Dungeon uh, where the the toll uh, that the horrors of adventuring take on your mind is just as dangerous as the monsters. Based on discussions on past episodes, I feel this game is right up your alley. Picture a side-scrolling dungeon crawl set in a Lovecraftian hamlet and drawn in the style of the Hellboy comics. Stress comes into play during each mission and between missions. Uh, your characters develop quirks, uh, agoraphobia, fear of the dark, fear of blood, holy ravings that need to be addressed. You keep a stable of about 15 adventures on hand, but if you run out of gold for treatments, sometimes you find you've, uh, you've got to send in a group of paranoid, abusive drunks, uh, send them into a dungeon and hope for the best. <laughs> Enjoy and keep up the awesome work, uh, Matt in Toronto. And, uh, yeah, this I have not played this, but I had to look it up after I received the email. And it came out from – it was uh, published uh, by Red Hook Studios. And it looks like it's available uh, for Windows, uh, Linux, um, PlayStation 4, and hmm. PlayStation uh, Vita, if anyone out there has those systems. I do not.
4: Yeah, and uh, also in relation to that, we received – I would say a good dozen emails of people recommending a game to us called Spec Ops The Line, yes, which apparently also incorporates in some way or another uh, dealing with PTSD in battle. But almost all of our listeners who recommended this to us said that it's like a, it's a really important twist as part of the game's story. So they didn't want to reveal to us how it played into it. They all recommended uh, the game entirely. They said they said that it was really great. So yeah, uh, it that was... may be something that I'll look to play down the look.
3: Yeah, the I looked this one up. It came out in 2012, mm. and uh, it sounds like. It was probably maybe a little ahead of its time, uh, or you know maybe it's 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 trying to make. So wait, is it a shooter? It is. It is, like, it yeah, is a shooter. So, yeah. It's a third person shooter, and it was developed by uh, Jaeger Development for Two K Games. Uh, oh, okay. Distributed Those are the by Take that Two Interactive. Make a Battleborn and um, uh, Borderlands. Hmm. Yeah. So it it. It sounds to me, from materials I was looking at uh, about it, and I have not played it, that, yeah, that it was just maybe a little too advanced for what people really wanted. I guess maybe. people wanted the escapist, Call of Duty, yeah. you know, shoot everything without consequences kind of game point play, and this was developing something uh, a little more deeper, and maybe a, maybe a little less fun in the process. Well, yeah.
4: that was what we were asking for. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know about the less fun part, but I, I, what I was saying in the episode was, I would think it would be uh, a more immersive storyline. Yeah. And so, and it it definitely sounds like from everybody who's played this that they think so. Yeah. So it sounds like it's worth checking out.
2: Yeah, you guys might have mentioned this in the episode, but it it does certainly make me think that. Exactly that concept runs counter to what I think a lot of people are trying to get out of a video game yeah. experience. I mean, I think a lot of people are like, they want a rush without actually having to experience any lasting trauma or anything. Yeah. It's kind of the same way as like a horror movie or a roller coaster or something like that. Something to, to, you know, give you, uh, adrenaline focus. And get the, get the high, get the experience, get the relaxation benefits you get out of that, but without actually having to do anything dangerous or scary.
4: It's funny that you mentioned this because I was thinking about uh, the episode that you guys did on Tetris. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that came up. Uh, yeah. And, and, uh, I've been, uh, lately playing a lot of the shooter game destiny i don't know if you guys have played this before this is the
3: one with gods in it so. uh no no it's
4: like an mmo slash uh first person shooter this is the one
3: where everyone has like it. weird faceless helmets
4: yeah okay yeah, yeah yeah uh and i have found that even though i'm c- kind of bored with the game itself and the storyline that i'm just repetitively playing it almost like i would play like a puzzle game like tetris solely just to kind of calm down Mm -hmm. like i'll play it for like 30 or 40 minutes it's totally mindless i don't really get anything like i don't even get like any adrenaline high out of it it's just kind of like put the bullets in the heads it's flow
2: Yeah. yeah that's the whole thing with uh with tetris i mean suppose we talked about this in our episode is uh creating a state of a task that's um that's just challenging enough to keep you engaged, but yeah. also easy enough that it never becomes frustrating.
3: Exactly. So but within a you... simplified reality too. Yeah. One with definite, definite goals, definite limits. Yes.
2: Clear, clear goals, mm-hmm. clear achievable goals that you can just essentially a, a set of parameters where you can just continually achieve success over and over without it becoming too easy to be boring.
3: Yeah. And certainly as we discussed, in those episodes, Tetris is, is a game that never becomes too easy. Yeah. And it, it inevitably becomes too hard. I right? think
4: that that's probably what, I think Bungie are the developers of this game and that's kind of how they figure it out to keep you addicted to it. You know what I mean? It's like, there's always some like next stage to get to with it and there's not too much thinking involved. Mm-hmm. The thing that's weird to me is like, it, you know, we talked about this in the Combat Stims episode that like, you and I mainly, if we're playing shooters, we, we like them to be fantastic or sci-fi. this is like very sci-fi aliens people don't really die they can reincarnate as like digital forms of their bodies but like there's something inherently weird about like calming down while just like blowing away like 50 or 60 aliens, you know.
2: I don't know about you guys. I I, I fail to see the appeal of these military shooter games. That, that's I know what they're, we talked about I know they're very popular, yeah. but I I I cannot see what's all that fun. A,
4: a lot of people love them. My brother really likes playing them, but like we said in the episode, for, for me personally, it has to be some kind of uh fantastic element involved in it for me to not feel like, I'm just replicating, like, horrific real world violence. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And no, I do have to say that, uh, I haven't played one in a while, but I used, uh, used to really enjoy playing World War II, uh, aviation simulators with my uh, dad. Okay. Uh, and, but I wonder if that has more to
2: do with your love of planes. I
3: think so. Well, the thing is too, they're the planes. And then there's that distance from the human reality. Cause it's ultimately, it was ultimately like these breathtaking, uh, digital models of planes interacting with each other. And yes, it's representing encounters that would in, we end in human deaths and casualties, and sometimes bombing incidents. But, but still, there was a there was a, it was a little more removed. Um, that being said, I know we have some listeners out there who play and early really into these military simulation yeah. games. So, I would I would love to hear you guys. I don't want to you know just completely judge you guys and your uh, the games you're into. I'd love to hear your feedback on it and how you think about it.
4: There's got to be something to it that that I feel like I'm missing because they're so incredibly popular. Mm-hmm. But uh, also related to that episode, we got a letter from Joseph uh, and he has personal experience in the military and wanted to weigh in on what we talked about with combat stimulants and other drugs in the military. He says, I'm writing in response to your questions posed at the end of combat stims. As a four-year veteran of the Marine Corps, I found it extremely interesting. First off, I'd like to say that I loved your Fallout references and that you (laughs) approached the subject of PTSD, killing, etc. very well, and I think everyone will be happy with it. My experience with drugs in the military, specifically the Marine Corps, is one of deep involvement. In fact, every Marine I ever knew was part of it. Drugs are in the culture. We promote heavy drinking and even heavier use of stimulants. One drug you didn't cover was nicotine, which I think has an impact second only to caffeine. That's a really good point. I didn't even think about that during the episode. Possibly a third of all Marines I ever met smoked or dipped and during deployments or training operations that grew to easily half and not without good reason. Deployments and training operations are exhausting. Hell, even normal days in stateside are exhausting. An average day would begin at 0500, waking up, then exercising with the platoon at 0600. After that, we would work until often as late as 1730, but it could go longer. That's roughly a 12-hour day, and doing that five days a week is exhausting. To cope with even that, caffeine is impossible to avoid, and nicotine is hard to say no to. Hell, I dare to say I owe my life to Copenhagen. 24 (laughs) hours, no sleep. Driving 35 miles per hour on a desert road with more than a uh, little more than candlelight. No exaggeration to see the vehicle in front of me. It's impossible without nicotine and caffeine. A common breakfast among Marines was something called an MRE, a cigarette and a can of Monster. <laughs> of course, if you could get it, which I could, Adderall was a godsend. We did talk about Adderall in mm-hmm. that episode.
2: I don't know if it's clear from the message, but does that mean, does that mean sanctioned by the military authorities or illicit use of Adderall?
4: Uh, so we talked about this in the episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, it depends. I think for pilots, it may be sanctioned, but Adderall for Marines, I don't think would be, right?
3: It's, I think what you're encountering here is likely similar to what you're encountering in so many lines of work that are right. not even military based is that you have, you have individuals within these, uh, these lines of work that have access to it. And then that access is shared. And yeah. ultimately you're talking about a, a brain boosting power up that, that improves focus, that improves energy. Um, yeah, it's going to get used. Uh, yeah.
2: so maybe like a culture of permission, even if it's not explicitly, that's my read on the, on the situation. Yeah.
4: Um, and going back to what he says, he says with with Adderall, one could easily work 18 hours, days, pass out and keep going. Personally, I could keep this up for a week before I began to feel tired. Now I was no pilot. He says, just a dumb guy. You don't sound like a dumb guy from this message, man. Uh, but uppers are the savior of the modern military. Painkillers are also very commonplace. There's a running joke that the longer you're in, the more painkillers you take in the morning. Concerning steroids, I know a few guys who were on them, but it wasn't to make them better killers. They just like to look big. Did it help in fights? Absolutely. But it wasn't the purpose. Because they were illegal under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, I didn't partake. But if I could have legally, I definitely would have because not being extremely strong is not something your buddies take well. Okay, so Joseph actually, there's a lot more to his letter here, but I, I don't think we have time for it in this episode to read the whole thing. Suffice to say, he provides us a look at a day in the life of a Marine. He also talks about PTSD and, and, uh, uh he, he liked our reference to minimaxing, again, video game terminology mm-hmm. in terms of, uh,
3: being in service. Uh, I also want to, uh, Throw in here that we received, uh, some feedback from a few listeners who pointed out, uh, some World War II era uses of methamphetamine. Right. Uh, in particular, I think, uh, Panzer's Schokolade came up as well as, uh, Stuka Tabletten. And those were on the German side, I believe, yeah. right? And then yeah. And there, but there were some other examples, uh, from World War II as well. So that's something we might come back and look at in more detail at some point. Uh, really look at sort of the, um, the, 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 uh, the World War chemical rise of, uh, methamphetamines. It might also be interesting to look at, uh,
2: drugs at the top of the Nazi chain. I know there's a lot of yes. interesting stuff now about, uh, about like Hitler and top Nazi commanders and their, and their drug use habits.
3: Yeah, yeah, Hermann Goring pills and, yeah. uh, uh, the th- I, I seem to recall, uh, talk of intravenous, uh, methamphetamine use by, uh, Adolf Hitler. Is that right? I, 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 I can't vouch for that. I remember seeing some yeah. speculation on that at least. Worth revisiting in the
2: future. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, we got one more for you, and it is one coming in from our listener Stephanie in response to the episode. We did way back, Christian and I did, a two-parter about uh, the failings of forensic science. Yeah, a where, lot of
4: people wrote into us and actually uh, asked for more, so yeah. maybe
2: that's something we'll
4: revisit in the future.
2: Uh, but if you recall, that was a while ago, the, the basic idea was that um, that there is a lot of research now indicating that some of the major uses of forensic science in the justice system in the United States have been not so great. Right, they're they're sometimes
4: invalid methodologies. Yeah,
2: like uh, some methods used uh, to produce evidence that supposedly scientifically solid evidence to defend people or convict people is actually just based on you know, mythology of the, the culture of the fire investigator or something like that. So there's a bunch of stuff like that. And that's what we talked about in the episode. There's a bunch more we could have talked about, but anyway, here's where Stephanie comes in. She says, hi fellas. I'm catching up on your recent podcasts and the ones regarding forensic failings caught my attention. I'm an experimental psychologist and I graduated from the University of Wyoming with an emphasis in psychology and law. Needless to say, it is a fascinating and fruitful area of research, uh, some of which focus specifically on the failures of eyewitness memory. And we did mention that in the episode, how bad eyewitness memory is. She says, since you mentioned the Innocence Project, and that's a, uh, uh an advocacy group that yeah. we mentioned in the episode, She says, since you mentioned the Innocence Project, I'm sure you already know that over 70 percent of their exonerees were originally incriminated using eyewitness testimony. If you haven't already, I recommend reading, quote, Picking Cotton by Jennifer Thompson, a rape victim who misidentified her attacker and Ronald Cotton, the man she misidentified and who spent roughly 11 years in prison while innocent. To be fair, there are some procedures that may assist in lowering systemic causes of misidentification. Some of these, and again, the Innocence Project has a website containing great information, include the following. Lineups. Selecting fillers for lineups that actually match the description of the eyewitness. There are cases where people of different races were used as fillers which only serve to highlight the suspect. Also having the lineup administered by someone who, do, who does not know who the suspect is, as having verbal and nonverbal clues may lead the eyewitness to an individual. The instructions given during a lineup are also crucial. An eyewitness or victim, as in the case of Jennifer Thompson, is under a great deal of pressure to identify the attacker. Saying something as simple as the perpetrator may not be in the lineup can help relieve that pressure and give the eyewitness permission Mission to not select someone. The Innocence Project also suggests getting confidence statements uh, from the eyewitnesses, having him or her rate his or her level of uh, confidence in the selection of the individual from the lineup. However, research indicates that the confidence one feels does not always positively correlate with accuracy. This holds up from a lot of stuff I've read where people will sometimes misidentify someone in eyewitness testimony and say yep that was him i know it
4: and also uh we've done uh brain stuff episodes on uh how confident people think they are about things and they often report themselves as feeling very confident in things when they have the least amount of uh, expertise or actual confidence <laughs> oh, right. to participate uh, in those. I forget. There's a, a terminology for that. Are you that.
2: talking about the Dunning-Kruger effect? That's it.
4: Yeah. Dunning-Kruger. Yeah.
2: That has to do with like uh, the lower your level of skill in a particular task is, the higher you rate your skill. Yeah. I could uh, see a relation
4: here, possibly.
2: You you don't know how little you know about how to do it. But anyway, uh so continuing with Stephanie's email. She also mentions photographs, Uh, photographic lineups, she says, should also follow the same suggested procedure as in-person lineups. Additionally, however, the pictures should be shown consecutively rather than concurrently, as we often see on TV. This reduces the chance that the eyewitness will make a relative judgment, meaning one individual looks the most like the perpetrator. So that must be the guy. Okay. Uh, as an aside, my dissertation, which I hope to publish soon, was on the accuracy or inaccuracy, as I found, of memory in the elderly. It was formatted after Steve Chechy's famous mousetrap study in response to the daycare scandals of the 1980s, in which he asked children simple questions, some of which were implausible over the course of many weeks. He found that children would start to form memories of the events specified in the questions. Similarly, I found that after only a few weeks of Of asking those over the age of sixty-five similar questions, I had them telling me their memories of events that did not actually happen to them. E.g., they were struck by lightning while riding a
3: bike in a rainstorm. So this ties into the Satanic Panic episode that we did a while back.
4: Yeah, Uh, both that and our episodes uh, where we've been recently talking about how memories are formed. Mm and how we're every time we're recalling a memory we're rewriting
2: that memory. I also have read separately about totally different research along these lines where uh the experiments were if you can just get people to say they did something over time, they will start to remember having actually done it. Sure. So you get some students to say like, uh, just read these prepared statements. You know, <laughs> I, I have fallen in love with a dictionary. Oh, man. Um, and then later you ask them like, do you remember falling in love with the dictionary? And they'll be like, yeah, yeah, that, I guess that did happen.
4: It's heartbreaking. Uh, did you guys watch making a murderer? Yes. No, yeah. I didn't. Yeah. It's, it's I don't want to say anything, but it's related to that.
2: Well, yeah. So anyway, the, the whole thing is yet again, this comes up over and over on this show. Our memories are just not as good as we think they are. We're really, really prone to, to false memory implantation and yeah. recall. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so, uh, Stephanie continues, evidence that protocols must be put in place to prevent, uh, to the best of our abilities, faulty eyewitness identification. I could go on. There are many suggestions, including areas such as interviews and even protecting eyewitnesses from the suspect in court. I'd be happy to assist should you want to do an episode on eyewitness memory. Uh, keep up the good work. So, uh, thank you, Stephanie. Uh, and that is uh, that was an awesome message.
4: Yeah, this is certainly uh, a topic that we're interested in. And I think that there's going to be more and more research coming out in contemporary academic literature that's finding newer and better ways to do forensic science, but also that's evaluating the methodologies that are currently in place. Sure. So hopefully we'll return to it in the future.
3: Alright, well you know, uh, I don't want to cause any alarm here, but, uh, Carney appears to have, uh, finished uh, his self-virus scan. He appears to have rebooted and may have rebooted in, uh, in combat mode. Execute. So we, we might need to clear out of here. What are these pop-ups saying we have to import a credit card number before we can properly load the operating system? Negative. Ooh, I wouldn't argue with him right now though. Better. Better pull him out. Do, do either of you have some jet that I can take? Um, I think Carney has some jet. Okay. But I don't know if you want him to administer it. Yeah, I don't know. know. Psycho jet is what he'd give me. <laughs> okay. All right. Hey, uh, if you want to check out the episodes that we talked about here, look up old episodes, new episodes, uh, etc., head on over to com. That is the mothership. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes we've ever recorded. You'll find videos, you'll find blog posts, and you will find links out to our varied social media accounts.
4: Yeah, in fact, those social media accounts are where some of these letters that we read today come from. So, if you want to reach out to us on those, that's your uh, your your poison. Uh, reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or, I don't know, it'd be tough to write us a long letter on Instagram, but you can give it a try. <laughs> uh, we are available on all those platforms as Blow the Mind.
2: And if you want to get in touch with us directly by email, as as always, you can hit us directly. I just said directly. You, you can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com.
1: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home.